I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Now, there is a problem that I'd like to address this morning, and it's a problem that has massive moral implications. And it's a problem that we're sometimes tempted to believe doesn't really exist anymore. Maybe it's because we believe the world is a much different place today than it has been in the past. And these types of things don't just really happen anymore. They were well over that as human beings. Sometimes we think this problem doesn't exist anymore, maybe because we choose to ignore it. We choose to forget that it ever happened because it played such an intricate, important role in our nation's history. The problem that I'm talking about this morning is the problem of slavery. John Newton, who is the famous author of the hymn Amazing Grace, wasn't always a hymn writer. At one point, he was a slave ship captain who made his entire living off of slavery. But then one day after becoming a follower of Christ, he read the Bible and he gave up the slave trade because he read the Bible and realized that the God of the Bible is a God of deliverance. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, around the same time as Newton, a man named William Wilberforce was a politician in British Parliament. He spent almost his entire life serving in British Parliament. And after he became a Christian, partly through the influence of John Newton, Wilberforce came to the same conclusion, that the God of the Bible is a God of deliverance. And so he devoted the rest of his life, the rest of his political career, to fighting slavery and fighting the slave trade in his part of the world. Countless other Christians throughout history have found inspiration to fight slavery, to fight that injustice, to fight that oppression, because they've encountered the God of deliverance that we read about in the Bible. Now, that being said, slavery does still exist today, even though we're often really, really isolated from it in our suburban paradise. The illegal slave trade still occurs in certain parts of the world. Sex slavery is a major problem worldwide to this very day. People, especially women and children, are often still treated like pieces of property. And Christians, we should be fighting these injustices. We should be on the forefront of trying to eradicate the world of this horrible problem that brings no glory to God whatsoever. But the truth is that Despite the efforts of men like Newton and men like Wilberforce and other Christian leaders who have spoken out against slavery, other Christians who have read the Bible and been confronted with the fact that the God of Scripture is a God of deliverance, despite the efforts of human rights groups and governments and legal teams, all of those things, slavery still exists. And there's one type of slavery that no matter how many legal teams or how many human rights groups or how many leaders spoke out against it, it would still be around. There's one type of slavery that we as human beings have no power in and of ourselves to defeat or get rid of or eradicate. And that slavery is slavery to sin. That slavery is still very much around. That slavery still affects Every single one of us, human beings. Why is that? Why does this slavery exist? Why is it so hard to get rid of? And why are we subject to it? Well, we talked about that last week. We're starting this new sermon series called Come to the Table, looking at different meals throughout Scripture and the important events that happened around 
tables where people are eating meals and how this often contributed to the things that happen in Scripture. And last week, specifically, we talked about Genesis chapter 3. We talked about how God created everything. Everything that was in existence, God spoke it into creation. God spoke it into existence. And that included Adam and Eve, the first two people. Now, God allows Adam and Eve to live in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is this paradise of harmony and goodness. They have a great relationship with one another. They have a great relationship with God. Everything seems to be going so well. But then Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan to break the one ground rule that God set. And that was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan tempts Adam and Eve and together... They disobey. They give in to the temptation that Satan puts in front of them. And as a result, sin enters the world. Specifically, when sin enters the world, there are deep, deep consequences that we find ourselves in slavery to. And those consequences are physical death, expulsion from God's presence. Adam and Eve are thrown out of the Garden of Eden because of their rebellion. But even in this passage, this horrible passage where sin enters the world and rebellion seems to win and disobedience seems to take over, there's that tiny sliver of hope in Genesis 3, verse 15. And that's where we see the very, very, very beginning of this idea of God delivering his people, of God being a God of deliverance. And we see the promise that he's going to do this ultimately through one person, And that person is Jesus. Jesus would come fully God and fully man. He would be one of Eve's offspring, fulfilling that prophecy of Genesis 3, 15. He would overcome temptation the way Adam and Eve didn't, the way you and I so often don't. And thus he would live a sinless life. He would die a sacrificial death on the cross, a pure and spotless lamb, taking the wrath that you and I deserve. His blood shed and removing the separation between God and man. And he would rise three days later. So early on in the Bible, we already see this story happening. The story of God delivering his people. The story of God being a God of deliverance. And it ultimately finds its culmination in Jesus. But there's more to the story than just that. There's stuff that we need to look at right in the middle of the beginning and the end. And for that, we'll be in Exodus chapter 12. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Exodus chapter 12. If you're using one of our Bibles, that'll be located on page 46. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. Now with that, before we read our passage, before we kind of get an idea of where we are and where we're going this morning, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful That you are a God of deliverance, that even though we live in a world where so much oppression and exploitation and injustice still occurs, God, we know that you're a God of deliverance. And we know that as your people, we are called to be fighting the problem of slavery, fighting injustice, that we are to give people just a tiny, tiny glimpse of what your kingdom might look like. God, I pray that as we talk about this problem, that we'll be inspired not only to 
proclaim your deliverance to the world around us, but to never forget the deliverance that you've given us. God, we're coming here from different backgrounds and and different lifestyles and, and different struggles and fears and successes and failures. And God, I pray that in your wisdom, in a way that I can't do, in a way that none of us can do, that you will speak to each person in this room this morning in the way that they need to be spoken to. That your word would be sufficient, that it wouldn't come back void, and that you would just work on and challenge and change hearts little by little. God, we love you, we praise you, we honor you, and we ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, well, in Exodus chapter 12, we find the people of Israel, God's people, in captivity. But how did we really get there from Adam and Eve? Well, God makes a promise to Abraham, a guy who's nothing special, nothing new, nothing unique about him. And yet God, in his grace, calls Abraham and makes him a promise that he's going to be the father of tons and tons of descendants. And that the nation that he will be the father of will bless all the other nations around him. And Abraham says, "Okay, that sounds good. That's a great promise. But the whole thing about me having descendants, my wife and I. We're pretty old, so how's that really going to happen? Well, it does happen. God miraculously comes through on his promise because that's just what God does. And Abraham has a son. Abraham has a son named Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And then Jacob has lots of sons. But there's one son that he really, really loves. And that son is Joseph. Joseph is the favorite over all of his brothers. And naturally, you can probably understand, Joseph's brothers don't take too kindly to that. They're not too crazy about being the forgotten children when Joseph gets all the good stuff. And so they come up with a plan one day that they're tired of Joseph. They're tired of him being so arrogant. They're tired of him being shown all the favoritism. So they come up with a plot. They make it look like Joseph was killed by a wild animal. They tell their father that Joseph is dead. We found his bloody coat and we don't know what happened to him, but clearly it wasn't good. When all the time, Joseph was actually sold into slavery by his brothers. And eventually, through ups and downs, through successes and failures, through his devotion and his humility and his desire to seek the God of his fathers, Joseph is delivered. And he becomes a highly respected official in Egypt, this foreign, powerful land. God delivers Joseph. And then one day, way down the road, Joseph seems to be living a pretty good life. Things are much different now. He's turned the page of his life. Years down the road, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because there's a famine. And Egypt is the only place anywhere around that has food. So the brothers come. They see Joseph. They don't even know it's Joseph at the time. Joseph doesn't let them know that it's him. And again, through a couple different things that happen, there ends up being a happy reunion. Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. They embrace. They forgive one another. And they move on with life. And things seem to be perfect at that point. But then time goes on. Joseph dies. The leaders that respected Joseph, they die too. And all of a sudden, things aren't the same. God's people have multiplied, they've grown. Joseph's descendants have grown in the land of Egypt. But the Egyptian leaders begin to exploit them. 
They begin to oppress them. They become slaves in Egypt, which seems to fly in the face of this whole idea of their God being a God of deliverance. But believe it or not, even as they toil in slavery, their God still is a God of deliverance. He hears the cries of his people. He raises up a man named Moses, and Moses is called to lead God's people out of slavery, to remind them that even after all this time, their God still is a God of deliverance. It starts with plagues. Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go. He's stubborn. His heart has been hardened. And so God sends plagues to really show Pharaoh who's in charge, to really show him who has all the leverage here. There are nine plagues. Some of them come from the water. Some of them come from the land. Some of them come from the sky. There is disease. There's pain. The crops are dying. God shows that he is very much God. And if Pharaoh were wise, he would let God's people go. But his heart is hard. Pharaoh refuses to let go of this massive workforce that he's found in Egypt. Even after all these plagues. Even after all this pain, even after all these problems that holding on to these people has brought Egypt, Pharaoh is stubborn. His heart has been hardened. And so God sends one final plague after these nine that will really get Pharaoh's attention, that will really stick out. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, before we go any farther, think about what God is saying here. Think about what that means. God is essentially saying, Hey, Moses, I'm about to do something here. And from this point forward, for the rest of your existence, your calendar is going to revolve around this one event. That's how big this is going to be. This event is going to start the beginning of the year for you. Imagine how massive an event it would take for us to change our calendar. For us to say that from now on, September is the beginning of the year. Fall is the beginning of the year. It would have to be an event that absolutely turns the world upside down. And yet God seems to be telling Moses, yeah, that's exactly what this is going to be. So get your calendars ready. Buy a new planner because things are about to change big time. This is a huge event. What's the huge event going to be? Is God going to live up to the promise? Well, look at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. That's the big event. You're going to sacrifice a lamb? What's the big deal with that? That happens all the time. That's a pretty common practice. Every house buys a lamb. If you can't afford a lamb, get with your neighbors, see if you can work something out. So everyone's represented by a lamb. But again, we're going to change our calendars for this? Sacrificing lambs, that's nothing really special. These are common sacrificial animals. 
They represent dependence. They represent helplessness. But that would make sense that they would sacrifice a lamb at this time. They are pretty dependent upon God. And they have pretty proven pretty helpless being that they're slaves in Egypt. Okay, let's humor God. Let's go along with the plan. Get a lamb. All right, kill the lamb. Okay, seems to make sense. Everyone do it at the same time. But then things get a little bit different. God starts giving some specific commands. And this is where we start to see that this really is a big, big event that's going to take place. Look at verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Again, so far things haven't been that weird. But then God starts saying some things in this passage that are a little bit more out of the ordinary. God says when you sacrifice the lamb, here's what you're going to do with it. You're going to sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of your house. Okay, seems kind of weird. This is where things are getting a little bit different, but okay, God, if that's what you want us to do, then we'll do that. Then I want you to have a meal. Okay, we can do that part. We'll roast the lamb. We won't boil it. We won't eat it raw. We promise. We'll make sure it's roasted. And then we'll get rid of the leftovers, like you said that we should. Okay, sounds like a pretty normal meal so far. But then I want you to specifically eat unleavened bread. Because this thing that I'm about to do, this thing that you're about to see, this thing that your calendar is going to now revolve around, you're not going to have time to wait around for dough to rise. You need to eat quick. So eat unleavened bread. And while you're at it, eat some bitter herbs. I mean, you've been dealing with the bitterness of slavery for all these years. So what's the problem with some extra herbs thrown in there? Okay, this is where things get a little more specific. And God reiterates, do this in a hurry. Be dressed. Be ready to go. Have your belt fastened. Have your shoes tied. Have the DVD player already installed in the Honda CRV. But get ready to get moving because we are about to take a trip and you don't want to wait around. You don't want to drag your feet on this because this is a huge, huge, huge event that is about to happen. My Passover is coming. What's a Passover? What does that even mean? Look at verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now we see why God tells them to get ready to leave. Get ready to move. Because Egypt is about to become a land of horror. A land of mourning. A land of sorrow. A land of pain. Remember that blood 
on your doorposts, that's not just a Halloween decoration. That blood, the blood of the pure and spotless and blameless lamb, that's your hope for deliverance. That's what's going to save you from death. That's what's going to save you from my wrath that is coming. Because the firstborn of every home in Egypt without blood, the firstborn will die. Egypt is about to know who I am. Pharaoh is about to know who's in charge. They're about to know that I am a God of deliverance. And there will be no bones about it. In the rest of Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 32, God makes it clear that this big event that is coming, this scary event that is coming, this overwhelming event that is coming, that Moses is probably in shock after hearing what he has heard, you're going to remember this event. In fact, I want you to commemorate this event every single year for the rest of your existence with this meal. I want you to reenact this meal that I've talked about, the lamb and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, because you should never forget what I'm about to do. And sure enough, God lives up to the hype. The Egyptians wake up and there are cries heard across the entire country. Those who did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts lose their firstborn children. Rich, poor, Pharaoh loses his firstborn. They beg the Israelites to leave. These people who would refuse to let the Israelites go earlier, they are now begging them to just get out of here. Take your stuff, take yourself, get your God away from us after what he just did. And the Israelites do just that. They leave Egypt. They leave with dignity. They don't leave out the back door. And they leave knowing for sure, unequivocally, that their God is a God of deliverance. Now, what does this have to do with us? When Jewish people sometimes celebrate the Passover, there's something that is often read or often recited, and it goes something like this. In every generation, one must look upon oneself as if one personally had come out from Egypt. I know it's worded kind of weird, but in every generation, one must look upon oneself as if one personally had come out from Egypt. Okay, sounds like a nice sentiment to believe in, especially if you're Jewish, that you want to remember this event. You don't want this to be some distant, isolated event that your ancestors went through. You want this to mean something to you. Okay, that sounds good. That makes sense. But we've never been slaves in Egypt. We're not Jewish. How do we embrace this idea of remembering the Passover as followers of Christ? Well, back to Adam and Eve. While we may not be slaves in Egypt, we are very much slaves to sin. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So Paul's talking to Christians in Rome and he says, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who you used to be. You used to be a slave to sin, but you're not that anymore. Why? Because of what Christ has done for you. Because of the blood of the lamb. 
When John the Baptist sees Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. You starting to see a theme here? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul refers to Christ as our Passover Lamb. Hmm. Even more of a theme there. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We as followers of Jesus, we too believe in a God of deliverance. Now, we aren't delivered from the cold chains of slavery in Egypt. We're delivered from that domain of darkness that sin has brought upon us and has brought upon the world. And our deliverance doesn't come by plagues from the water or plagues from the land or plagues from the sky. Our deliverance doesn't come from the blood of a lamb sprinkled on our doorposts. Our deliverance comes from the blood of the lamb shed on a cross. That's where our deliverance comes from. That's where we have been slaves. We may not have been in Egypt. We may not be Jewish. We may not practice the Passover meal, but we should know a thing or two about what it means to be delivered from slavery. Because God has done that for us through his son Jesus, even more so than he did it for the Israelites a long, long time ago. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. This happens pretty early in Jesus' ministry. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus makes it clear. I've been sent to deliver my father's people. This isn't from slavery in Egypt. This is from slavery to sin. And we have that same hope because of what Jesus has done. We have more in common with the Israelites than we sometimes realize because we know a thing or two about what it means to be a slave. We know a thing or two about what it means to be looking for hope, to be looking for deliverance. And the good news is that we can find it through Christ. We can be freed from the slavery of sin. We'll still wrestle with sin. The rest of our lives will never be perfect. But we also know that in the end, death and separation and sin, they don't have the last say. Our slavery doesn't last forever. And in eternity, we have hope because we worship a God of deliverance. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you have delivered us. And God, we, 
probably all have stories of sin that has just held us captive. And God, some of us may, by your grace, overcome that sin, and some of us may wrestle with that sin for the rest of our lives. But God, we know for a fact that you are a God of deliverance, that you are not content to keep your people separated away from you. And so, God, you have delivered us, not by anything that we've done. We don't deserve deliverance at all, and yet you've done it. And, God, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you've done it not in the same way that you did it in Egypt, but you've done it through your son, Jesus. And God, I pray that we'll never forget that. I pray that we can honor and glorify and praise his name every single day, realizing where we once were and where you've brought us and what you've done for us. God, thank you for your deliverance. Thank you that slavery doesn't have the last say, that sin doesn't have the final victory but that we have hope through your son Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you're wrestling with slavery right now. Maybe you've been slave to your own passions. You've been slave to your own desires. You've been slave to trying to earn approval or trying to find wealth or, or trying to find acceptance or something like that. I pray this morning that you would turn to Christ, that you would find deliverance from those things. Maybe there are idols that you're worshiping in your life. I pray that you would seek that Christ would deliver you from them. That the separation between you and God that sin brings into the world might be removed by the blood of the Lamb. If you're a follower of Christ, I pray that you would never forget where your deliverance comes from and where your hope comes from. And that you would proclaim the source of your deliverance to anyone and everyone who will listen. That they might experience the same freedom in Christ that you've experienced as well. If you'd like to talk about any of this stuff, if you'd like to place your faith in Christ this morning and discover what that deliverance means, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room during this last song. If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you don't really know what you think about all of this, talk to one of them about that too. Have them pray with you. Just take advantage of that as we sing this last song. And I pray that you will leave here this morning knowing the deliverance that only Christ offers.